if you are an instructional coach, a principal, a superintendent, someone who does observations, who uses a rubric to evaluate teacher performance during those observations, this episode is for you. We are talking all about look-fors, co-constructing them with teachers, and how you can create student-centered look-fors that are clear and understandable to both you and teachers from the Danielson Framework Rubric. Here we go. Hi, I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Let's talk about establishing observation look-fors. This is a critical piece of the observation experience is being really clear about what it is we're looking for when we as leaders, as instructional coaches, as principals, as superintendents, when we walk into a class or we zoom into a class if we're virtual, we want to be very, very clear with what we're looking for. And we want the teachers that we are observing to be really clear on what we're looking for as well. Ideally, we actually want to co-construct these look-fors with teachers so that it's a collaborative effort. We are sharing in the process of determining what a great class looks like, sounds like, feels like to be a part of. This is really powerful stuff if we can get it into place. So this process is very possible, but it's also quite challenging, particularly because we have traditional ways of conducting observations. We have traditional rubrics that we use. For example, the Danielson rubric is a popular rubric for instructional observation and assessing teachers' performance. And so the Danielson rubric is great. It has a lot of great stuff, but in my personal opinion, it doesn't always get really clear on what the look-fors are. It, over time, has gotten clearer and clearer. There have been multiple iterations, and that's great. But I also think, again, that co-construction piece, working with teachers to determine what is it that we want to see in our specific school or district can be really powerful, can help teachers own the experience, just like we want students to own their learning experience. And it can be really precise with our language when sometimes language varies by school or by district or by state even. We might have different standards that we're striving for. We might have different ways of referring to things, or we might have different goals, right? In our school, as a school, we have this goal. We want to make sure that's really present in this year's look-fors. That's the other thing. The look-fors can change from year to year. They can be a process that is ongoing at the, at the start of every year uh, or every coaching call with individual teachers. When we start coaching, we might actually develop look-fors specifically for one teacher. 
at first, that could be a really great pilot program for co-constructing LookForce. And then eventually over time, we can create or use what we've already created with individual teachers to kind of put together a larger look for list that is categorized based on the themes that individual teachers are pursuing. So again, those could align with the Danielson framework. They could be something that you use in your particular school or district that aligns to your school goals or district goals. But the idea is if we establish really concrete look fors, we have the shared understanding of what's going to happen and observations, how they're assessed. And if we co-construct them with teachers, we have a lot more buy-in. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to focus today on domain three, which is instruction of the Danielson rubric. And I want to just talk through the Danielson language, possible look-fors that I've seen suggested online by various sources, and I think how to take it a step further beyond what some folks say is, is a clear look for to make it even more clear and even more student-centered. A lot of the language still has a very heavy teacher feel, um, but we know, right, just from being educators and being leaders in this space that what we teach is not always what students learn, right? We could have this great lesson, but for whatever reason, if it's not clicking, if students aren't understanding it, they're not engaged with it, like it doesn't really matter, right? So I think having student-centered language is a huge part of having very clear, precise look-fors. It also, I think, takes the heat off of teachers a little bit to say, you know, sometimes students are just having a tough day. Sometimes we, we don't see uh, that students are responding in the way we want. And you've set up a great lesson. It was really thoughtful. We did all the planning and preparation, which is domain one, right? That's the kind of pre-work or even domain four when we think of reflective practice. There's all this stuff that we can say about how teachers are preparing and putting this all together. But when we look at what the students are doing, if those look for aren't there, we can use that information from the observation to have a conversation with that one teacher, multiple teachers. We can have a school or district-wide conversation and use it as a problem-solving opportunity, not as a punitive opportunity to say this teacher didn't do this what do we need to do as a school or district or as a coach, right? Individually in our conversation to move the needle forward, because if the students aren't responding, it doesn't really matter what the teacher's doing. So let's dive in. Let's take a look at domain three instruction. And I'll read to you a little bit of the Danielson language. And then I want to really talk through the look fors and what those can look like. And again, I'm going to suggest some things, please, please adapt these to your own purposes have those conversations with teachers and co-construct your own specific language. Domain three is broken down into several elements. The first one is communicating with students. And to be completely transparent, I rarely look at the different rubric columns. The rubric columns in the Danielson rubric are as follows. They are unsatisfactory, basic, proficient, and distinguished. So those are the mastery categories. To me, and this is the same with setting student goals for strategic planning, I don't see any point in looking initially when we're, when we're planning out the look fors in looking at unsatisfactory, basic, or proficient. What I want to do is I want everyone to be at distinguished, right? I think that's the goal. And of course, not everyone might be there and we can kind of work backwards from there, but to have standards set for like, oh, yay, we're going to get to proficient, but not distinguished or we're going to get to basic. To me, that's just really 
um, insulting of teachers, that's harmful to students, it's harmful to teachers' growth, it's harmful to the school as a whole. Just like when we set a strategic goal for 100% of students to accomplish something versus 80% of students can accomplish this. Of course, right, we might face particular challenges that inhibit us from getting 100% every time, but shouldn't the goal be 100%? That's my thought on this. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read you the distinguished category language because I don't even want to bother looking for kind of a lower bar. I want everyone to be striving for that distinguished criteria. When we refer to communicating with students, here's what the distinguished criteria is. The teacher links the instructional purpose of the lesson to the larger curriculum. So already I'm thinking about, okay, when we do project-based learning, this is already easier. So if we have this set up, we have this larger project that we're constantly working towards in a unit, I already have that planning and preparation from domain one done. This is going to be way easier. After that, we have the directions and procedures are clear and anticipate possible student misunderstanding. What my brain is thinking about as I read this is that's kind of a teacher role. Teacher has directions that are clear and procedures that are clear, which is incredibly important. And yes, we want to anticipate ahead of time possible student misunderstanding. But what I see a lot of times when we move to the next part, when we're looking at look for is that this still stays in teacher language. What about having opportunities during the lesson to surface student misunderstanding, right? What if that's not teacher led, but students actually surfacing their misunderstanding? Well, that means that the teacher has to then provide opportunities during the lesson for this to happen. So as I'm reading this distinguished criteria, I'm already thinking, well, what does that actually look like in a particular class? Next, it says the teacher's explanation of content is thorough and clear. Developing conceptual understanding through clear scaffolding and connecting with students' interests. This immediately is making me think of the various types of differentiation. I have a previous episode on that if you want to go back and check that out. I'm also thinking about connecting with student interests. That's a part of just knowing your students, which is another domain here. I think 1B is the element. And when we know our students, we're better able to do that. What are all the things that I could ask a teacher about their practice that enables me to know that they have that? And again, thinking through the student lens, when I'm thinking about look fors, I want students' eyes to light up. I want them to lean forward and be engaged, right? These are my literal look fors. This is what I can see in a class. If students are interested, I'm going to know. Students contribute to extending the content. This is the next piece. By explaining concepts to their classmates and suggesting strategies that might be used. So not only do do students have opportunities to lead class discussion, to explain to one another, they are also being able to problem solve. They're also being able to, through maybe a social studies or an ELA lens, apply some of these lenses of analysis. Students are taking that problem solving role and they're not just stopping after the first problem solving approach, they're coming up with multiple. Next we have the teacher's spoken and written language is expressive. And the teacher finds opportunities to extend students' vocabularies, both within the discipline and for more general use. So we model as teachers, but the whole point of modeling is that students ultimately pick it up, right? Again, the student-centered lens here. Students contribute to the correct use of academic vocabulary. Sure, we don't want them to incorrectly use vocabulary. So online, through a quick perusal of some different sites, I see look-fors like the teacher explains content clearly and imaginatively, using metaphors and analogies to bring content to life. 
that's awesome, right? We want teachers to do that. Absolutely. But in my mind, that really falls under planning and preparation, right? They're going to prepare to share this really imaginative explanation. And that is awesome. But when we're talking about this student look for piece, when we're talking about in the moment, what I see in the class, I'm probably going to want students to be able to re-explain that concept to me. I'm probably going to want to see, again, that engagement, that leaning forward, glimmer in the eye, right? That that interest um, on students' faces, that ability to recall it several days later, to apply it in context, to create an imaginative physical representation of that idea, you know, whatever it is. I, again, would try to share a little bit more student-centered language. When we see start look forwards that start with this language, the teacher does this, the teacher does this. I want to push us to transform that into here's what the students are doing as a result of what the teacher does. And so maybe as you're creating these look fors, what you might do is start with what comes naturally, which might be teacher centered language. And so we say the teacher does this, the teacher asks this. But then I also want to challenge you to have kind of like a sub bullet or a sub look for that's like, but ultimately what I want to see is the students responding to that in this way. So that might be a nice stepping stone if this is really unfamiliar to write in student-centered language. So here's what I came up with. And again, these are not perfect. There is a lot to work with and the language may differ or the goals even may differ a little bit school to school. That's important to consider, right? Take these, play with them if you want. But here's what I had for kind of breaking down this distinguished criteria. Again, this is domain three, which is instruction and element A, which is communicating with students. Students can explain what they are learning and how it connects to larger unit or course themes or projects. So I want to be able to go into a class and ask a student, why are you doing this lesson? So not only what are you doing in this lesson and why are you doing it in this moment, but how does this lesson connect to you know, the previous lesson to the next lesson, how does it support you to do your project? That was always the guiding question for me. How does this lesson support you to do your project better? Because we always want the students to know what the project is because then they're looking constantly at the lessons through a new light. They're saying, oh, this lesson provides me this concrete information or this concrete skill. And that's necessary for me to be able to do this project. And the project, of course, has to be engaging, something they really want to be able to accomplish. It has an authentic audience, all that good project-based learning stuff we've talked about before on the podcast. But if you have all those things in place, right, a quality project with an authentic audience, something that is interesting to students, they want to complete it, then that motivation also applies to all of those lessons as you are moving through the unit, but they have to be able to make that connection. Okay. Next look for students are engaged during the teacher's presentation of information. So again, the teacher piece was that they are creatively and imaginatively using metaphors and such to be able to explain concepts. Okay. Well, my piece to that, like, yes, we want that. Absolutely. Maybe that's the stepping stone, but ultimately what I want that to be able to do is to engage the students, right? To be able to ask students to retell or uh, apply that understanding later. And so I need a student-centered look for there. The next one, students have opportunities to share misunderstandings. So once students have the opportunities to share their misunderstandings, we wanna make sure that those misunderstandings are corrected. And in the teacher-facing language, that sounds like the teacher correcting the misunderstandings. What I think is really important here is enabling students to be able 
to correct those misunderstandings as well. Maybe even getting first shot to correct them. This could be in small groups. This could be whole class. Um, you know, it could look different ways, but the teacher can always step in later. We don't need to assume that students can't self-correct. And honestly, many times, especially if the teacher has already delivered a mini lesson, the students being able to repeat the information in student-friendly language or in kind of a new creative way that the teacher hasn't used to describe it is going to be really helpful rather than hearing the teacher say the same thing again. So the students can correct the misunderstandings and the teacher can step in if the students, you know, aren't able to, or that still doesn't land. The next one is students have opportunities to explain concepts to classmates or to teach the class. The language from Danielson is to explain concepts. I also just like the phrase teach the class or become a content expert. I think a great thing, again, when we're connecting back to how we set these opportunities up, we're connecting back to that domain one of instruction, right? This is all interrelated. If we have opportunities for students to engage with choice boards or to pursue different kind of sub paths, subtopics within the larger topic of the lesson, this enables students to dive into resources, texts, audio, whatever, that their classmates may not have explored, especially if you're really strategically grouping using jigsaw method or something like that, they really are the content experts, particularly in larger projects when students are pursuing paths of exploration for various topics for their project that the teacher maybe doesn't even know about. So having students have that opportunity to be experts is huge. When faced with a challenge, students brainstorm multiple problem-solving approaches. I've seen this really uh, work well in, for example, in math classes, in math language routines, where you have a collect and display routine. You collect maybe a post-it note. I mean, this could be a digital or physical post-it note, depending on where you are. Ways of approaching a particular challenging problem putting them all up on the board or all up on the shared space and then categorizing, oh, this student looked like they used this approach. This student looked like they used this approach. That's kind of a whole class way to do it. It's a great way of, you know, not teaching them how to do something, not saying this is the formula you need to apply, but whoa, this is a challenging problem. Let's break it down. Let's ask how we do this. So I really like this from a mathematical standpoint, from a science standpoint, um, I think it could be used in other classrooms as well, perhaps even as we have confronted an interpersonal challenge or we have confronted a technical challenge, right? What are the ways that we can problem solve around this right now? It doesn't always have to be an academic problem that they're solving. Now in an ELA or history class or an art class or a music class, somewhere where we're analyzing, students can brainstorm multiple lenses with which they can analyze a text or event. That's a look for that I think works really nicely in those settings. I'm thinking about social studies classes where we have the different lenses. When I taught feminism, you know, thinking about uh, critical race theory as a lens. When I think about intersectional feminism as a lens, right? Queer theory as a lens. So these different lenses that we apply kind of like multiple perspectives, but I think sometimes multiple perspectives uh, can be problematic. And I've written and talked about this before. But the idea of divorcing a uh, perspective from the power dynamics that exist in society, it can really lower the challenge. It can lower the criticality present. And we want to maintain, uh, you know, that really high level of challenge for students. Things are complex. We want them to analyze things 
from a lot of different lenses without losing sight of, you know, well, this perspective has no evidence backing it up, or this perspective perpetuates oppression, right? All these things are really important to consider. And so that's why I use the word lenses instead of perspectives. But again, feel free to change language as long as you keep those kind of broader ideas in mind as we co-create these with your school building. The last two are students use academic language correctly and students use creative language, or you could say students use language creatively. We don't want incorrect usage, but also we then give students opportunities to correct each other, right? Going back to that first one, which is great. And we want students to be able to play with the language, to be able to create, to use language creatively. And so it's not just the teacher that gets to do that. It's not just the teacher that should get to use innovative explanations of concepts with really fun metaphors that are engaging. Maybe the challenge to students is how creatively can you explain this, right? So we have, you know, 30% of the class that is not understanding this. For those of you that get it, your challenge is to take the next 10 minutes individually or in groups to figure out a way to explain this that is creative and accurate. Or maybe that's a homework assignment, right? A, a creative thinking homework assignment. I think that would be so much more fun than a bunch of problems on a worksheet. Thinking about these opportunities, again, as look fors when we go into a class, are we seeing students doing these things? And the other piece of this too is while we might get a sense of things like class culture from just being in a class for a short amount of time, we think about instruction, how each lesson activity kind of coheres and forms this whole learning experience. Lessons as individual standalone lessons kind of form this pattern. We don't always see particular things at, at different points in the lesson. Sometimes an activity comes at the end, coming in late to a class, we don't see so much of the setup that is helpful to be able to understand what's going on later in the class. So I'm a big advocate of staying in for the full duration of, of the class period, or making sure that when we come in, we're coming in during student-centered learning time or group work time or application time, whatever it is that you call it. But to be able to pop in quick and ask a student, you know, I, I missed the start of this class. I think I'm missing some things. Don't take away from their work time for 10 minutes of a conversation, but just be able to check in with them and ask for that. Coming in for 10 minutes is really, really hard, I think, to see domain three in its totality. Uh, we just went through that one domain or element of communicating with students, but there are several elements in this domain, including using questioning and discussion techniques, engaging students in learning, using assessment and instruction, demonstrating flexibility and responsiveness. What I'm going to do for the freebie for this week is I've put together a Google Doc for establishing look-fors for observations based on domain three, the instruction domain of the Danielson rubric. I've pasted all the distinguished criteria for each element and listed out what each element is. And for the first two, communicating with students, which we just went through, as well as the next one, which is my favorite, using questioning and discussion techniques, I've gone in and added student-centered look-fors as examples. What I encourage you to do is go through 3C, 3D, and 3E, which are the next three elements in the domain, and write out or co-construct with teachers what those look-fors could be. Again, you could draft your own and then bring it to the teachers for conversation, or you could bring it to a one-on-one -on -one instructional coaching session or a department or grade team meeting. 
that is your task. If you create something you want to share with the group, please share it on the Time for Teachership Facebook group. I would absolutely love to see it. And I think a lot of other leaders and teachers would love to see it as well. I think we inspire a lot of people when we just show them what's possible, when we create from research, right, from this base of well-documented Danielson rubric pieces, we can innovate from there. We don't need to stay there, right? We can push toward a more student-centered model of look for We can push to co-create with teachers and not just leave this as something that every school is going to adopt when it's potentially not that clear. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.